often when I go into retreat, I reflect on how it is that I came to be at this particular retreat. That is the forces that formed and shaped all the conditions that led to my being at, the, at such a retreat. I usually do so for two reasons. One is just the gratitude, feeling so fortunate to have the opportunity to be able to practice. And the other is just to cut through the um, inevitable resistance and apprehension and fear that I often feel coming into a retreat. So, I mean, even after 20 years, just to let you know, It's always there. It's a, it's a step. And it happens when we, when we prepare to take a step into uh, the unknown. And in fact, that is what a, a spiritual journey is all about. That's what makes it such a great journey. It's a movement from, from the known, from the familiar, into the unknown and the unfamiliar. So I reflect on, on these forces. And, and I find it quite helpful. It's as if I can step back or step up and have an a eagle's eye view, reflecting on the past. You know, my whole life, or my whole at least spiritual life, what led to that moment and being able to come there. I reflect on present conditions and forces that indeed will shape the future just as a way of setting up an attitude and of settling in, of getting ready for this journey into the unknown. I reflect on what it is that I want, what it is that that I'm seeking in this life, in this work, in this practice. I reflect on the initial dawn of awakening, which everyone in this room has had to some extent in order to have formed the very forces that brought you here. What is this dawn of awakening? This deep inner longing. It is, I believe, a deep urge toward authenticity and a deep urge toward freedom, liberation. Once we once we get in touch, once we feel or experience this initial awakening, we have what our first spiritual crisis might be. We confront uh, spiritual slumber or sleep. In the Pali, the word avija means the unknowing or, or spiritual sleep. We confront that because there's a recognition, at least on some level, that it is a separation. It is that which separates us from the truth. So this initial confrontation, this initial spiritual crisis, is breaking down the barriers of denial a bit and seeing how this force of spiritual slumber fragments the sense of practice as a totality fragments our sense of interconnectedness with all things.
when we move through this, this spiritual crisis, which, if we stay with it, becomes an opportunity, we get in touch with that calling, with that urge, with that longing. And for the very first time, perhaps, there's a, a realization or a confirmation that there is a path, there is a spiritual path that meets this call, this urge toward authenticity, toward liberation. We begin to open to this samsaric situation. So then we may begin many practices. Many practices that lead at first in maybe seemingly many different directions. But after some time, and hopefully here at this retreat, we come to see that all these practices have a certain um, intention toward that meets our inner urge, our inner needs. Now on the surface, these practices may seem to be just practices pitted against the opposites. So for example, the practice of dana may seem to be pitted against the realities of grasping or clinging or greed in the mind. And the practices of metta uh, pitted against ill will and sila against ways and forms of harming. But it's not simply just this way. It's not just on this level that it works. For in fact, all these practices go by way of helping us see this situation of suffering in a very positive way. They help order, or should I say reorder, our perception of the universe, of samsara. Whereas previously we lived in a way that was um, um, uh, sort of like controlled chaos. Now, instead of holding on to these old archaic structures, by these certain practices, it allows us to see this situation of dukkha, this reality of dukkha, in a very positive way. To see that it that this dukkha is the very stuff to be understood that takes us along to meet the, uh, the needs or the urges toward authenticity and liberation. The seen in a positive way is essential. Seen the teachings of the Buddha, dukkha and, and attachment in a positive way is essential for healthy practice, for practice, for being able to practice with that delightfulness in the mind, as opposed to that struggle and that striving. It's the way that helps open us to awakened and spontaneous and enlightened living by the very nature of these practices, not needing to wait for some end goal to be met. So that first confrontation with this samsaric situation that might come perhaps at one's first retreat. Many times I've heard students, students say at the end of retreat, you know, actually my life was just fine before I came to practice. <laughs> and that's because 
of our having lived in this uh, very highly structured, uh, controlled chaos. And when we begin to, which had the appearance of security, but when we again, when we begin to attend to our inner life, we see that it wasn't quite as stable or satisfactory or as secure as we really thought. We had learned very great coping mechanisms, but we really hadn't touched that deep inner life, that place that, uh, that yearns to feel alive and awake all the time. So we begin to doubt our previous belief systems, our way of living, our way of viewing life and relationships and ourselves and so forth. A healthy kind of doubt in this case. And very often we come against a very strong dose of dukkha, earth-shattering, usually in the first retreat or two. And that dukkha, that suffering, can lead to two different places. Without a sustaining awareness, without a strength of mindfulness to guide it, it can lead to more denial and more uh, dukkha. With a sustaining awareness, however, it can lead to that realization and confirmation that there is indeed a spiritual path. that we can make of our lives a spiritual path. And then the sense, the awesome sense of the mystery of life becomes for us an awesome journey. The result of this, whether we recognize it or not, the result of this first confrontation with dukkha, when it's met with awareness, is the beginning of power of faith an awakening power of faith. So something gets awakened when we move through, and there's many spiritual crises, many levels of them that we may go through during our life. What it is that gets awakened is this faith, this power of faith. When I first began practicing as a monk in Burma, one of the first things my teacher Sayadaw Upandita said was that all of practice is the awakening and deepening of faith. It was very inspiring to hear him say it, although I had no idea at the time what it really meant and its implications. But it just it felt it rang true, even without the understanding. Faith in the Pali, Sadda, means devotion, means venturing or risk, it means confidence, means trust, means all these things. It's the opposite of doubt, of a certain kind of doubt, of skeptical doubt, of the kind of doubt that's paralyzing and indecisive, paralyzing to our practice, to our journey kind of doubt that's unwilling to risk, to go forward, to venture, kind of doubt that inhibits our ability to trust, to trust the teachings, to trust the path, to trust our capacity to walk the path. When I first entered the monastery in robes, I felt very 
within a short period of time, I felt very lonely and isolated. I was in a foreign land with foreign uh, food and separated from family in a very alien culture to me. On the one side, it was very exciting. On the other side, uh, monastic life, in, in many ways, in the beginning, uh, has all the boundaries and symbols of a prison. <laughs> and I felt, indeed, I felt incarcerated. And you're not allowed to go out without really special permission, and you really have to have a good reason to go out and usually be accompanied by a little platoon of other monks. <laughs> so I, very, right from the beginning, I was lacking the confidence to, to continue practice because I immediately started intensive practice. I had no energy, no courage to persevere. There was one Western monk there who had just come up from Sri Lanka. Now, he had been a monk for six or seven years. And he was my nemesis at this time, at this place. He was demeaning, and he was patronizing, and he was condescending to me, while under the sort of auspices of helping me, showing me how to fold my robes. But there was this sort of aura, aura, or um, uh, a better word is aroma. <laughs> I won't say of what. <laughs> He used to love to cut in, in front of the line, the meal line, you know. And I, I didn't care at all that he cut, but it was that, that aroma that, <laughs> that was really disturbing. And I was like the new kid on the Buddhist block. And I was really vulnerable to all these impressions. And he was the one sort of assigned to kind of show me the ropes. And it was humiliating to be showed by him. So those first days and weeks were rather long. And I missed home. I miss my familiar surroundings, I miss my family, loved ones. I was, and I agonized a lot and at times felt desperate and felt afraid. And you know, I reflected it took so much to get there and yet I was feeling quite paralyzed and un unable to go on. S sittings were overwhelming and the walkings felt scattered. I'd often just go back in my room and weep. And I didn't want to bother, I had one good friend there. You know, I didn't want to bother him, he was going into practice too. Uh, somehow I just began to manage day by day. And I began to listen carefully to the Dhamma. And even just the slightest glance from my friend or others who began arriving, you know, gave me a little bit of energy. And listening again to the teachings from my teacher slowly began to emerge from this paralysis so that I could feel the pain of the doubt. I could begin to feel the elements of the doubt. I began to feel its heaviness or uh, the depression of it, uh, the fearfulness, the sense of contracting, uh, <clears throat> the restlessness and anxiety. All these things, once I could start feeling them, it began to be more okay, began to feel a little more present with it. <clears throat> and even when that, uh, the aroma monk, when he cut in line, I, just, I, I was able to start noting the feelings that came up. So I had a special note for him. I would note H-O, which stood for the hated one. <laughs> there was just a, enough of a sense of humor with that 
that I could stand back from it. And, you know, <laughs> it wasn't okay. And believe me, in time I, I started to grow fond of the hated one. <laughs> so as long as I could feel this doubt with, with awareness, with the mindfulness, I wasn't overwhelmed. I felt connected and I felt, in, I felt present with it. So slowly this, this warm energy and strength began to grow. I could feel it in my mind, I could feel it in my body, it began to stream through the practice and it became a sustaining power of practice. And this was this, this energy of faith. In time, it, it was this, as, as if nothing could stop the momentum of the practice. You know, on this foundation of faith and the energy that came after it and the, the quality of awareness and the collectedness of mind and the understanding that began, began to come and how that would circulate again into, again, reinvesting or reigniting uh, this power of faith so that it really grew and my practice just, just went from the bell at 3 a.m., the wake-up bell, throughout the day and into 11 o'clock at night. Uh, it just grew as if it had a life of its own. And then one day toward the end of my first period of practice there, we were all in a, I was in a, a, a kind of group interview with our teacher and H.O. and another monk was there. And H.O. was being chastised for something. And by this time, I actually had grown quite fond of him and uh, appreciated him in some ways. Although I must admit, there was just a piece of my mind that enjoyed the chastisement. <laughs> I want to discuss two facets of, this, uh, of faith and also how it, how it can be challenged. The first is, as I've mentioned, one of its meanings is, is venturing, that willingness to risk, willingness to, to step into the unknown from the known. And to begin that, I want to ta- uh, tell a kind of modern-day jataka. If you ever come to Hawaii, you may be driving along and you may see this bumper sticker on a car. The bumper sticker will say, Eddie would go. That's all. Or you might see someone wear a t-shirt. In fact, I'm wearing one right now. <laughs> that says simply, Eddie would go. It has no meaning to anybody except people who know who Eddie was. So now I'm going to tell you. So that if you ever go to Hawaii, you'll know who this sort of modern-day Jataka hero was. His name was Eddie Aikau, and um, he was about my age. We were contemporaries, and we, were often, we often surfed together. So that's a clue to who he was. He was indeed probably one of the great watermen of the world. He grew up very poor in a poor family on Maui, and they moved to Oahu, the island where we live, when he was still quite young. And while still quite young, he began to go down to Waikiki. He was just a kid, uh, beginning to bodyboard on cheap plywood and uh, learn how to body surf. And then uh, as he reached a certain age, 
he, he was, uh, his father saved enough money so he could buy a $99 surfboard. And that, uh, that changed his whole life. He was probably eight or nine at that time. Eddie loved the water so much that uh, he was destined to become a god or a hero of the sea. He wasn't much of an academic. And at age 16, when, he, when his father kept getting letters from the principal and so forth, his father simply said, you know, either you've got to really do it, stay in school and get good grades, or go and get a job and help the family out. Just do one or the other. Don't, you know, spread your energy out. His father, by the way, his name was Pops Aikau. He himself was regarded as a kahuna or like a... a um, a wise person in the Hawaiian clans, very wise person. So Eddie chose to get a job and he worked in the canneries, the pineapple canneries, very early and very late so he could surf all day long. And soon he was indeed one of the uh, youngest great surfers. And by age 20, and these were back in the days when surfing big waves was, a, was pioneering on the north shore of Oahu, he was among the first great big wave surfers. He applied for a job uh, with the uh, city and county uh, department of parks to be a lifeguard because at this time more and more people began to get in trouble out the North Shore as it became more popular and there were no lifeguards out there. So they had never before hired someone who didn't have a high school education. But they didn't really have an answer when Eddie said, um, you know, what does knowing about George Washington or Abraham Lincoln have to do with saving lives? So they did make an exception in his case. And he became a roving lifeguard. And today no one can say how many lives Eddie Aikau saved. Some reckon a thousand or more. But everyone will say, and the lifeguards of today, 15 years later, say that uh, uh, he was certainly the greatest of all lifeguards. He was operating in an ocean that was the fiercest, among the fiercest ocean on the planet and pulling people out of the water. Eddie would go comes from his willingness to take off on the biggest waves. That's one part of it. His willingness to catch waves that no one else had ever caught. And he did so with such grace and such mastery that he made it look effortless. And it was based on his years and his love of the ocean and his years of just surfing, of just playing with the waves and building up this skill so that when these mountainous waves that have such impact, even when they break a mile out at sea, you can feel thunder under your feet on the shore. You know, this Eddie had this, uh, Eddie would go. He also became involved in the Polynesian Voyaging Society that um, our contribution to the bicentennial in the mid-70s was to build this great double-hull sailing canoe like the ones that the first Hawaiians came to the islands some 2,000 years ago. And he was on training, on a training voyage 
on this boat uh, in preparation for sailing down to the Marquesas and Tahiti. When in the Molokai Channel, one of the most treacherous there is in the world, a strong northeaster came and uh, one of the um, hulls developed a leak and the boat flipped about midnight one night in 1978. And it, um, um, by Mid-morning the next day, they still had not been missed or spotted by commuter airlines. So Eddie set out on his favorite surfboard to paddle some miles to the nearest island for help. <clears throat> and he was never seen again. So he's remembered today as this, as this modern-day hero, like this bodhisattva, that even he gave his life to try to save 20 people on this boat. And when you see that Eddie would go, it makes people smile, it makes people proud that such a, a, um, a man as Eddie lived on our islands. That venturing spirit is the same spirit we need in the inner landscape when we, op- when we open up to uh, our own mind-body process, to open up to the big and the dark as well as the bright forces that lift us, that weight us down, that influence and that channel our hearts and minds. Without this venturing spirit, without this willingness to go, to do it, we'd be overwhelmed. And indeed, many times what comes up for us, you know, like old Eddie, uh, is a wipeout. But we get up and we go out again. We get out and we do it again. It's that willingness and that venturing spirit uh, that brings us back after those overwhelms, after those wipeouts. There's a a certain risk and relinquishment in letting go of familiar structures and support. Those first waves, those first big waves were surfed without any knowledge of what would happen, of how to ride them or where, where they would go. In the same way, you know, we have a certain security in our attachments to the familiar, attachments to familiar sense pleasures and opinions and views and expectations and judgments. They've defined who we are up to a certain point, who we think we are. And it takes this venturing spirit to be willing to let go of that, to let go of any idea or expectation or perception at all of who we were yesterday or even the last sitting, or even a moment ago. Our practice is a venture and opening to the four noble truths of the Buddha, the dukkha and the denial of desire and all the attachments and resistances. With the protective power of awareness, this venturing spirit is able, enables us to see this situation in a positive way, to see the very challenge of it as what it is that's going to awaken us, that what it is that will carry us toward this urge toward authenticity and liberation. That's how we let go into the unknown. That's this venturing part of sada, or faith. 
The other part of it is confidence and trust that moves from an innocence or a tender stage into one of maturity over time, over practice, and through many different levels. <clears throat> the mind begins to, to open, to become more supple as we come into this realization or confirmation that there is indeed truly a human spirituality that heals and that empowers and that liberates. The response is the mind relaxes a bit. It opens. It becomes softer, more supple. At that stage, because we're so open, we're also quite vulnerable. The very things that inspire, like uh, what we read or what we hear or what we see that is domically charged and inspirational, that very vulnerability to that which makes the mind open and supple and bright also makes us vulnerable to, to blind faith. And this happens at that innocent stage, at that tender stage. And it's important to be careful and cautious at that stage <clears throat> because we're vulnerable to many of the spiritual tribalisms. And that is, examples of a spiritual tribalism is my tradition. You know, or this tradition is the only one or the best one. Or only my teacher can give the clearest and best teachings. Or only this technique will really do it. These views are dangerous. They entrench us in a very narrow way and form of practice that just builds up stronger and stronger over time. So it's really important to be mindful of these early stages and vulnerabilities of faith. In time, it matures into the clear aim of authenticity and, and liberation. Very important to be watchful for the trappings along the way. Maturity comes from the confirmation that arises with direct experience, like doing the practice ourselves, seeing for ourselves what happens. Clarity about how the mind or heart works, how the actions of our bodies and mind and speech leave ripples. And those ripples follow us like a shadow, and they either haunt us or they enhance our life. They haunt us if the ripples that follow come from actions that were born out of attachment or aversion or ignorance. And these ripples are enhancing to our life, beautifying of our life, when these actions of body, speech, and mind uh, ripple along behind us with, uh, out of the forces of detachment or generosity or metta and compassion, or clarity of mind and understanding. We begin to sense that, at least, on some level. Have, have the, the feeling that that's what happens, and the more we pay attention, we, get, we see the immediacy of that. As soon as we say something angry, it leaves that ripple that haunts us for maybe some time, or some years even. We be also begin to, our awareness reaches a level of subtlety that begins to 
sense and feel the unique and universal nature of our experience. Very simply and briefly, the uniqueness of our experience is every time that we feel a sensation and its form of pressure or vibration or its form of heat and cold or in its form or modality of hard and soft or its form of fluidity and cohesion. These are the direct experiences of the body and the direct experiences of unique nature of body. And likewise with the mind, every time we know fear as just as it is, in the way that it affects the mind, or splits it, or contracts it, or anger, or ill will. Or every time we sense the texture of a moment of metta that connects us to all that there is, our calm that's so soothing and relaxing to the mind and body. These are all unique natures. And in time, too, we see their universal qualities of change, of process, that they all happen in this lawful configuration of appearances and disappearances. And that teaches us a whole lot about the nature of things as they are. Most importantly, there's a a shift. As we anchor more in the awareness of the nature of things, instead of being lost in the things themselves, there's a shift from this identified self as substance to this non-identified awareness of dhammas, of process, of ourselves as unfolding dhamma. These are profound shifts that move ever deeper as we practice. That prison of self-centrality giving way to a spaciousness of the law, of the natural way of things, of the as-it-isness of things. Again and again, we are challenged in this faith, both on the venturing, that willingness to risk, and in just the confidence or trust in the process. We shall be challenged. And it's helpful to be challenged. It strengthens this faith. Once upon a time, once before time, once beyond time, once our bodhisattva was born as a wealthy merchant in old India. He was working in his courtyard one day and someone walked by that exuded such dignity and such calm who wore robes, that the only thought of who this person was that came to the mind of the wealthy merchant was that this person must be one of the solitary Buddhas, the silent, non-teaching Buddhas. And he hastened to gather the best morsels that he had in his house that day and to himself carry it out and offer it into the begging bowl of this man in rags. So he did that and he was walking across his courtyard But in the area, observing all this, was Mara. Mara, the personification of attachment, aversion, and ignorance. Mara, the tempter. Mara, the opposer of all goodness, had this thought. 
Should this wealthy merchant offer this food to this Buddha, it will increase his faith a thousandfold and may lead to him himself becoming a Buddha one day. I must pre prevent such a powerful event from ever happening. So, midway across the courtyard, Mara causes the courtyard to split open and to manifest one of the great and horrific hells so that where before there was clear sky and beautiful floating clouds and shimmering leaves in the trees and the sound of men and women and children in the village, it was all soon covered by a wall, a steel wall of flame and an abyss of horror. Poised for only a second on the edge, the wealthy merchant thought, this can be none other than the workings of Mara. <laughs> Sweat poured out of every pore on his body, and he trembled and his heart pounded. He said, not today will I give in to these musings of Mara. I shall walk on. And he took another step into timelessness. And these walls of heat and flame kept bellowing up, and horrific sounds and iron-hard voices you know, yelled out, don't go any further, this is the end of all things. And he was covered with smoke and soot, but he kept walking, and time stopped, and it seemed like forever that he was walking. But just as suddenly as it all appeared, it vanished. And again, there was the clear sky and the clouds and the shimmering leaves and the song and laughter of children and women and men of the village. And again the sight appeared at the gates of the solitary Buddha. Less than a minute had passed. And he went up and offered the food. And the Buddha looked up, smiled, and said, Well done. Well done. He said, in this dreamlike world, gains and losses come and go like clouds in the sky. But for those who walk on through all fear and obstacles, they shall achieve their, their dreams, their goal beyond all doubts. So walk on, brave merchant. In this dreamlike world, we shall meet again. And grateful for his food, he walked out and went back up into the Himalayas. And the wealthy merchant, he went back into his house and he shared generously his wealth and helped others for the rest of his life. Many times was he tempted by Mara, who always failed. So our faith is tested in many ways, at many times, and mostly when it's unexpected. The venturing spirit, confidence, and trust. In the wake of such faith, in the wake of such a, a lucid and bright mind, inspired and touched by Dhamma, comes Dhamma energy called in the Pali, wiriya, meaning courageous energy or strength of heart and mind. It's a joyous and time-transcending energy 
because it is representative of the Buddha's great optimistic teachings, which are formed on this liberating power of energy. It's power to carry us, to guide us for our entire spiritual life. It's this liberating nature of energy that guides us toward the authenticity and fulfillment we seek. And it is this time-transcending, liberating energy that guides us toward that innate liberation, freedom that we seek. The Dhamma energy is itself guided by compassion. For as we see the situation, the samsaric situation of suffering with awareness, our hearts just open. The tendency for them to close and distance itself from pain begins to vanish because of the faith, because of the confidence. And instead, what we see, the suffering we see, has the capacity to open the heart. And this very compassion guides this Dhamma energy. In addition to compassion, this Dhamma energy is stewarded by skillful means, which means the right application of this energy so that it is right effort in practice instead of misguided, misdirected effort. Dhamma energy arises out of the confidence in and the valuing of the wondrous Dhamma. This wondrous Dhamma that the Buddha described as beautiful in the beginning, beautiful and good in the middle, and beautiful and good in the end. Valuing that which is truly worthy of value. Valuing that, this Dhamma, even above life and death itself. As we feel the effects, these, the healing, empowering, liberating effects of the Dhamma, the result is this Dhamma energy. And how do we feel it? We feel it through that maturity of faith, the growth of faith. So then this Dhamma energy is just there. And it lifts up as an activator of the path of practice. That is, its effect is in the beautification of the mind, brightens the heart, and makes the heart luminous with wisdom over time. So that it becomes a way of life. So that our Dhamma and our practice becomes our way of life. That is, all experience becomes a very means and material for our growth. Whatever it is that comes up, how, however difficult, whatever the conditions of our upbringing and environment, these are the very configurations of, of experience, of things that we need for our own personal growth and liberation. And Dhamma energy is in result of, of appreciating and valuing this truth. It activates the meditation process. It's the Dhamma energy that activates this whole practice. Meditation is the habituating ground for awakening, for enlightened activity, for 
pure spontaneity. And it's the Dhamma energy that, that activates this habituating ground, this meditative process. So it's translated, the energy translates in our practice as the ability to attune to and abide in the present moment. An unwavering attention is the effect of, a, of mature or strong Dhamma energy. It's not striving to get something. And it's not striving to get away from anything. It's attuning to and abiding here and now in the present moment. A relaxed, energetic presence. Nurtured. Nurtured on the one hand by, by compassion and nurtured by skillful means. Knowing how much to apply when how much to put out, how much to pull back. An example is of tuning a lute. Lute, I forget, I think it has 14 strings or maybe seven or something. But <clears throat> the good musician might retune her instrument after each piece she plays. Listening just for the slightest out of tuneness of even one string. You know, to strum it and feel something slightly off. What is it? Too tight, too twangy, not really perfect harmony. Too loose, too dull, too thuddy, not nice music. Just tune it up a bit or tune it down a bit, strum it, and it's just in tune. It makes a beautiful sound. Energy is just that way. Every day we can attune to that. Every sitting we can attune to that. <clears throat> when the mind awareness is really clear and really open, really relaxed, every moment we can feel that energy cord. Does it need to be tuned up or tuned down and able to reside, to rest in the present moment? Just so that it is in, in harmony with all the other factors, with faith, with mindfulness, with concentration, and so forth. Dhamma energy is the practice or effort of non-doing, of really not doing anything. It's the practice of doing nothing with full commitment. This is our practice. Practice is to do nothing, fully committed to doing nothing. That's great. <laughs> I think that's great. To do nothing, that's our commitment. How to do nothing. How not to try to get or get rid of. That's the key in trying to um, attune and feel and appreciate this Dhamma energy as it develops. When you surf big waves, all the more than small ways do you have to let the wave do its thing. For one thing, you have no choice. It's tons of water, and there's no way you can do the wave. You can do anything to the wave. The wave is just doing itself. And mastery comes in surfing the more you kind of get out of the way of trying to do anything. When body, board, and mind, and wave become one, and then it's just fantastic 
grace and beauty. Just part of the wave, playing with the wave. The wave is doing all the work. And there's just a response to it. The same way in surfing, I mean in meditation. A meditation, <laughs> I'll admit it's not as fun in the beginning <laughs> as surfing. But it's the same in the end, you know, as you get going and as you feel the benefits of it. It's really learning to surf the moment. Because every moment is a wave of experience, whether it's in the body or the mind, waves of sound or smell or taste, and sight, waves of thought and emotion. They're all waves. They're just doing the work. There's nothing that we need to be doing except responding in awareness. can only do this practice ourselves. No one, can, no one else can ever do it for us. So I'll close with another Jataka tale. Once the Buddha was being told about a, a wayward monk, a brother, who um, gave up persevering in his practice. You know, difficult stuff came up. And he just, he gave up. So the Buddha was saying how in the days of old, wise women and men persevered even through the difficult times. In fact, they persevered even when they were wounded. Because they found this, this Dhamma energy that could carry them through. And that they were the only ones who really could do this work of liberation. So by way of example, then, he tells a Jataka tale. He said, once upon a time, in Banaras, a bodhisattva was born as a thoroughbred, in fact, as a sinned horse, a very special kind of thoroughbred from the area of Sindh, which is now modern-day parts of Pakistan and northeast India. And he was the state horse of the king who loved this, this horse. And he was kept in this immaculate stall and fed three-year-old rice on a golden dish worth 100,000 pieces. And the stall was perfumed with the four odors. And there were crimson curtains in a canopy studded with stars of gold. And wreaths of garlands and fragrant, fragrant flowers spread all over the stall grounds. And a lamp of scented oil was always burning. This was his stall. <laughs> All the kings around coveted the kingdom of Benares, where this particular king at that time ruled. And once seven kings from around the area came and encompassed all of Benares and sent a message to the king saying, yield up your kingdom or give battle. So the king met with his ministers and they were kind of talking it over. Finally, the minister said, I don't think you should go in person into battle, but dispatch a certain knight to go do battle. And if he fails, well, then let's get, get together and figure out what we can do next. So the king, king went to the knight and he said to a certain knight, he says, can you fight these seven kings, my dear knight? And the knight said, 
Give me your noble steed, and I'll fight not only these seven kings, but I would fight all the kings of India. So the king says, fine, you can have that steed. You can have whatever horse you want and whatever weapons. And so with that, the knight bowed and went down from the upper chambers of the palace and went out, and he got great golden mail to put over the, this fine great bean, the bodhisattva who was in the form of this noble sinned steed. And he himself put on his armor and belt and girded himself up with his sword. And when he was ready, he passed out of the city gate like a lightning flash. And he went to the first camp, broke the first camp, and he took the first king alive and brought him back into the palace grounds. And again, he went charging out on the noble steed and broke into the second camp, took the second king, and came back. And likewise with the third, the fourth, and the fifth, breaking the camps, capturing alive the kings, bringing them back into the palace grounds. The sixth time, they broke the camp of the seventh king, and they took alive the seventh of the sixth king. But our noble steed sustained a mortal wound. But he made it back into the palace grounds. The knight saw the blood pouring out of the wound. And he laid him down to rest. And the battle was still raging fierce, so he began to, to armor another horse. And the bodhisattva saw this happening. And he thought to himself, that other horse will never be able to break down that seventh camp and capture the seventh king. All that I have accomplished will be lost, and this peerless knight will be slain, and the king will be captured, followed to his fo foes. I alone and no other horse can accomplish this mission. And so the steed spoke up. <laughs> Bodhisattvas have great power. <laughs> and he said to the knight these things. He said, only I can accomplish this. Stop armoring this other horse and rearmor me and mount me and take me to the seventh camp or all will fail. Without a thought, the knight did just that. Rearmored him, jumped on his back. Light, lightning, they flashed out of the palace into the seventh camp, captured the seventh king and came back into the safety of the palace grounds. The great being himself trotted up to the king and said to the king, Great king, slay not these...
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.